This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. Hello and welcome to the latest Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone and today we're going to be shining a light on Britain's nighttime economy. The perception is that pubs, clubs and bars have been having a tough time. And to a certain extent, the statistics back that up, with hundreds of closures contributing to the general decline of town centres up and down the country. But is that really the whole picture? Are we really any less interested in eating, drinking, dancing and having fun than we were before? And what are the people whose businesses rely on a thriving nighttime economy doing to address the situation? Well, I'm pleased to say that with me to answer those questions are three people who know the subject well. Peter Marks is chief executive of the Deltic Group, one of the country's biggest nightclub operators. Ralph Findlay is chief executive of Marston's, owner of 1,400 pubs and bars, company with a brewing heritage dating back to 1834. And also with me is Nick Lyon from Hudson Sandler, who's both an enthusiastic customer, possibly of pubs more than clubs these days, and an expert in communications for businesses in this sector. For my part, I should also declare an interest. I'm a part owner of a community pub, the excellent Crawford Arms in Maidenhead. Peter, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Deltic produced a regular report into the nighttime economy. When was that last published and what did it tell us? Well, we uh, reported our 13th quarter, uh, came out December. We always have standard questions on going out, uh, how much you spend and uh, where do you spend it. And when we're talking about the nighttime economy, we are talking about anything from 6pm to 6am. So whilst Deltic is a nightclub company, we are covering you know, Ralph's pubs, cinemas and bowling and everything else like that. And we're finding that spending generally is going up, around about £70 a head uh, on going out. That's the whole night out, including uh, travel there and maybe some uh, drinks before even. Uh, and uh, particularly at Christmas, we were looking at what people do differently at Christmas. And there were some interesting stats around the fact that maybe 54% actually go out more often at Christmas than any other time of the year. And that uh, if you are um, younger, you are more likely to go out more often you're the most likely to spend the most on going out if you're uh, 25 to 30 and my own favorite stat over Christmas which was that 13% go out to escape the family if they're 18 to 21 and I thought what only 13% (laughs) so on the whole that was quite an encouraging story then the figures from that report yes uh, we started this with Hudson Sandler as I said 13 quarters ago because we were sort of pretty much fed up of what is the misreporting of issues in uh, the nighttime economy. We know that it's pretty healthy. Yes, there are issues, changing tastes, the internet, and some very difficult towns, especially in post-industrial Britain. But overall, it's a pretty good place to invest your money, and people are going to carry on going out. It's not under the same sort of threats from the likes of Amazon, uh, because it's experiential. You can't get it in a brown box delivered to the reception, as it were. Absolutely. So, Ralph, I mentioned at the beginning there that obviously there has been an awful lot of coverage around closures of pubs and bars and difficulties in the high street. What has been the experience for Marston's? How have you found the last few years and uh, your kind of experience in the nighttime economy? Well, first of all, on, on the pub closure part of that, the, the data is that the pubs, pub numbers have gone from about 65,000 roughly 10 years ago, to about 40,000 today. So 
that's a big drop in the number number of pubs in in the UK market. And most of those would be what I would call um, wet-led community pubs. So there have clearly been a lot of factors um, affecting that. I think, I think against that backdrop, how have we done? Uh, we've just recorded six years of consecutive LFL growth in top-line turnover. During that uh, decade, I've built about 220 to 230 new pubs against the trend, choosing our locations, choo- choosing our markets um, pretty carefully. So I, for me, it's all about where you sit in the market, who you are targeting, uh, and understanding what is working and what isn't working. If you look at the amount of spend on eating out across the UK, it is in growth. So we are spending more money. I think in total it's about £90 billion. Pounds. Pubs are about £25 billion of that. And both of those are going up. And as Peter described earlier, you know, the spending patterns are changing. What people spend their money on is changing. Um, and for me, it's a question about understanding those trends and making sure you're on top of them. So when you refer there to understanding the trends, that sort of leads into the whole question of, you know, how that story is told and how that plays out. And as I say, that there is a sort of perception that this is a sort of troubled area um, because of the question around closures, albeit what, what you've just told us, Ralph. So, Nick, from your perspective, in terms of kind of telling the story and trying to kind of maybe alter the narrative around this. What do, what do you think are the challenges? What are you able to do? Well, I think, I think the first point is that I'd certainly agree that um, perception isn't always uh, reality. And part of the reason for looking at the Knight Index was actually grinding in some data rather than just anecdotal stories. And the media do sometimes like to follow one trend without actually being challenged. And we're, we're trying to help clients like Delsic actually look at numbers and therefore you can put together a quite compelling story when you're talking to particularly the media as to where your client sits and why they have great opportunities to grow in the, you know, in the greater scheme of things. If I, if I may make a point about that, it's um, that, that point about the narrative. Um, that there is a, in, in relation to pubs, there is a media angle which is about closure of pubs. And as I've already described, a lot of pubs have closed. And for every person who was operating that pub and running it, it, it is a personal tragedy. So somebody has lost a business in all of that. So I don't wish to downplay that. But I was, I was phoned up recently by a journalist who wanted to talk to me about the number of closures in and around Birmingham. And he said, you know, there, there are fewer pubs than ever. And I was, I was explaining to this journalist that, generally speaking, the pubs that are closing are those that are taking maybe two or three thousand pounds a week we had opened one in birmingham that's taking fifty thousand pounds a week and that you know overall spend has just moved what people spend money on has moved but the industry itself is still vibrant it's just not in the same place it used to be i'm interested to see where that might impact on your business peter because my impression and what ralph said there seems to back it up to a degree that there's a sort of change towards a bigger pubs which Mm. you know bigger venues more does that impact on your business, the, the, the club side, or do you think there's always going to be a kind of natural separation between the pub business and the, and the club business? Well, first of all, we like pubs. 
Uh, we like them to be surrounding our clubs. We like bars to be surrounding our clubs. And we do a lot of collaborative things within the community uh, because we want to see investment and a good town centre and a good nighttime economy as a whole. We would say that we usually have the largest licensed premises other than sporting venues and large live music venues in every one of our towns. Um, because of that, are almost the anchor tenant for the nighttime economy. And we've often seen that when maybe in... A, a difficult town with uh, difficult economics, the last club has closed, and then the pubs and bars have really struggled and the closures have accelerated. But what changed for us was, of course, licensing reform. We used to have a monopoly post-midnight back in 2003-04, but in 2005, uh, with the 2003 Act, uh, we lost that monopoly and we saw uh, a number of the poorer quality nightclubs shut down. They used to get away with just about anything. Mm -hmm. And we probably all went in them when we were younger. Yeah, yeah. In basements, uh, pretty poorly, you know, no ventilation and pretty horrible. Well, they've all shut. But of course, that means that you end up with a headline along the lines of half the night uh, clubs in the country have closed and it's all something to do with the past and no one wants to go clubbing anymore. Well, let me tell you, that's definitely not the case. Just in terms of that kind of perception, you, mm. as you were saying, the headlines, etc., to what degree do you think clubs, the nighttime economy, is still sort of perceived as being a, a kind of young people's thing? And what, what can you do, both yourself, Peter, with your business and, and Ralph as well, to try and make the whole kind of nighttime town centre more appealing to a wider cross section of society? Mm -hmm. Well, I think clubs are younger and we can't escape that. And when uh, pubs were open till later and bars open till later, it was the older end. You know, there's 26 to 35 that used to be a big part of nightclubbing, uh, the audience that is, uh, that sort of decided they'd rather well, very happily stay in uh, a, uh, a bar. Um, and, of course, those bars have also had dance floors and DJs, uh, which they didn't used to have. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to the 18 to 24-year-olds, we're king. And they want to come clubbing. And uh, we're not seeing any diminishment in, in numbers. It's holding up quite well. Uh, whilst margins have been a little bit affected by some of the costs thrown at us, uh, by government, etc., the reality is that uh, we're, we're quite pleased with where we are. And we have a very clear purpose. It's an experience. Going to a club isn't just sitting there and drinking uh, in the corner of the bar. It's a social interaction. People go there to keep up with their friends. And a bit of escapism. And that's, that's not going anywhere. And from from your perspective, Ralph, on that point about trying to appeal to as broad an audience as possible, I mean, I know anecdotally people of my age, over 50s, might sort of think twice before venturing out in a town centre on a Friday or Saturday night because they they think it's not for them. What, what, what do you think you can do to address that? Uh, I think there's a lot you can do to make things easier for people. I, you know, When you look at what concerns certain people about going into town centre safety is a huge part of it. If a place has got a bad reputation, it will be dead because people don't want to go. Transport links, really, really important. The ability to get in and out quickly. You know, A good example of this, and this is good for some towns or city centres and less for others. So if you look to Birmingham, I think Birmingham's been really, really good. And I completely agree with Peter's point earlier that you've got a whole load of really good businesses anchoring off one another. Bars, clubs, restaurants. There's a, there's a great experience for anybody who goes into Birmingham. The difficulty for other places around Birmingham is it's really easy to get into. So the, the, it's from Wolverhampton, which is where I live, it's 20 minutes on a train. And Wolverhampton city centre is dead. 
So it's it's that is one of the challenges I think for some high streets. Just to improve the infrastructure around access yeah. and perception. Really, yeah. really important. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if I can interject yeah. there, uh, it's Manchester's an even greater example. I remember meeting the Oldham Council once who were very pleased to tell me that they'd got the tram coming. And I said, well, why is that good news? And uh, Manchester used to have a number of towns like Rochdale and Bury and Oldham and um, others. They're all they're all gone that you know that from a nighttime economy perspective there used to be at least two or three clubs in every one of those towns uh, and now there's two one in Bolton one in Oldham actually we do do rather well in Oldham but it's it, it is the the problem there's so much investment going into our cities that the towns are being left behind and that this is a wider piece not just for um, the nighttime economy uh, but for the economy and uh, it's it's difficult in some of these towns and I myself have just split my business into two operating divisions one is city one is town and the reason for that is because they just need operational different styles it's just a different world and nick just in terms of kind of audiences so we've heard some of the points that uh, ralph and peter have been making about what they're trying to do to address some of those maybe misconceptions who do you think are the important audiences from your perspective who are you trying to talk to to kind of reassure them about uh, some of the points which have been made this morning well i think it, it breaks down to various forms of stakeholders Obviously, what we're hoping to do for our clients, not just in the leisure sector, but generally, is to get key messages that resonate and make people sit up and think twice. I mean, particularly, I think you look at the high street conversation, we are hoping that people um, start hearing our clients' needs and believe in their story. So if you look at you know the high street, what is going to take the place of those retail shops that have closed down? Should they all be converted to flats? Is that really going to create a vibrant high street? And we certainly want to make sure that when they start talking to our client, they're hearing third-party endorsements of their stories from you know well-informed journalists who also understand that there is a greater need rather than just following the herd, talking about the latest depressing news about another um, retail outlet chain closing down. The, that whole question around you know the, the the sort of general deterioration of a high street and you've both of you talked already about the kind of importance of people kind of feeding off each other essentially what are you doing ralph for you to start with um in terms of collaborating not only with other sort of businesses but, but with other people who, who have an interest in the town center so local authorities the police whatever community groups how actively do you engage with that uh, very actively, so and I'm sure Peter would say the same, involved in local business groups in town centres that are trying to revive some of these places, working with cities who are talking about business improvement districts and uh, safety in the nighttime economy, those kind of things, working with universities, because universities also are interested in how they can revive town centres. And I had a meeting last week with Wolverhampton University on exactly this point, and there aren't any easy answers to it but there are many people with a, a real interest in in making this work and peter for your part well uh, safety absolutely is the number one and uh, the police cutbacks have not helped the city mm. centers uh, you are lucky to find a policeman in in some of the major cities other than a friday and saturday mm. and so that has uh, a bit of a knock-on effect but it's quite interesting that over the last five years, I feel the mood music has changed. We were pretty much seen as a bit of a nuisance and a cost to the local society and no one really understood the economic benefits I felt uh, within council.
patrols and with the police. And that has so much changed, maybe because of retail and the difficulties and the uh, awakening to the situation that our high streets need to still uh, be a draw in whatever their offer is for people to want to live in these places. And it's been a real challenge, as I said, in in some uh, towns. But I've seen, uh, and I often use the example of York, uh, York, uh, I thought, were one of the first movers that I saw where they were flexible on the usage of this their This is properties. the local authority. It was the York local authority, and that they had a street called Fossgate, and it was tertiary retailing that had closed down, um, and no one was going there, and they basically changed the use to enable uh, a lot of leisure in their bars, coffee shops, restaurants, and it's a really lovely, vibrant street, and that's what needs to happen. And I think the police get it now, uh, the councils certainly get it now, and I feel that we are heading in the right direction, albeit some towns are way behind others. Uh, and w- one other point just on the you know, going in the right direction. You, you, you mentioned earlier the importance of your business being an kind of experiential business. Yeah. What are you doing to, to change that beyond just the fashion and the trend? Well, the first thing we've done, of course, over the last uh, five, six, seven years is actually invested a lot of money in our club so that we've got best-in-class uh, modern facilities with great toilets and, and gone are the days of sticky carpets and sort of... Cigarette smoke know, and all that. Yes, yeah. uh, that is going back again, yeah. isn't it? And, uh, and, and horrible, smelly clubs. There's just not the way it is these days. You've got to give a first-class experience. We've spent tens of millions of pounds on our state uh, modernising it, which then enables us actually to take a, a, a longer refurbishment cycle. We maintain our premises really well, but it makes the uh, business fundamentally a lot more investable. You don't have to keep uh, changing the name of the club. You've just got to make sure that you stick to the brand principles and run them long-term for the brand. And, and Ralph, in terms of those kind of issues for your business, what do you think are the important elements which change and improve the experience? Uh, well, I think it's brilliant because I think I completely see the the interest in experiences more than just transactions and something that's convenient. Uh, you can get convenient at home, so when you go out, what do you want that's over and above that? And pubs are brilliant at that. And, and in some ways, they've had to go back to their roots and work out what they used to do. So uh, at one level, we've seen more interest in things like darts nights and quiz nights and the stuff that you used to read about Mm -hmm. pubs doing. And that is actually pretty vibrant all the way through to sporting pubs, which when it's done brilliantly is fantastic. Uh, I remember when the uh, 2018 World Cup was on and you remember all those images of people throwing beer up in the air. And some, somebody calculated that there was about a quarter of a million pounds worth of beer up in the air any one time when, when a goal went in. But it, what that was doing was capturing, you know, people being together and celebrating something. And I think that's what pubs are, are fantastic at. So for me, that whole movement towards people wanting more out of when they go out, I think is brilliant. Peter touched on it a little bit with the, the nighttime economy report that Deltit produce. But in terms of being able to appeal to a a wider audience and change that reputation so pubs no longer seem to be the a sort of male preserve. I think that bit I think that bit's gone. I don't I don't I don't think pubs are seen as a male preserve. I think the challenge for the pub industry is younger people mm. who are you know, they've been brought up in coffee houses and that whole pub culture thing is not something that is as strong as it used to be. So for us, there's that sort of generational shift that I think we've we've got to work harder at, and how we how we capture some of that. And is that in terms of kind of 
expanding your offer, more focus on low and no alcohol drinks, better food. Yeah, it's 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 all of those things. So if you took the uh, low no sector as an example, uh, there has been huge growth in beer, in spirits uh, from a small base. The numbers are still pretty small, but we at we at Marston's as a brewer, we are something like eight percent of the UK low no beer market, and that is growing at sort of thirty to forty percent per annum at the moment. The type of food that we're offering on menus, more interesting, more healthy. Health, a long-term trend, more people eating less meat, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. All being picked up in the kind of offers that we're putting out. Do you think that whole question around sustainability, this is a question for all of you actually, do you think that's beginning to have a significant impact on people's choices about what they do with their leisure spending money so i mean i'm thinking of some specific pieces of regulation coming in around say deposit return scheme for example which obviously going to have a big impact on pubs and clubs maybe to a less extent is that being mainly driven by regulation or do you think this is coming from your customers preferences i think it depends uh so if you took plastic as an example in our business that was driven by people coming into pubs and saying, why are you still giving me a plastic straw? Plastic's been, a, I think, a big consumer-driven issue. I think there are other areas that we work hard at where we can communicate better what we do and people are interested. So investment in energy efficiency, waste recycling. You know, at Marston's, we're about 1.1 billion and 0% of our waste goes for, um, is not landfill, recycled, yeah, yeah. landfill. So uh, it matters to us. Uh, it increasingly matters to shareholders, I think. Uh, and I think more and more it matters to customers. The deposit system, I think, will be interesting. That's coming in in Scotland first rather than, than in England and Wales. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's going to be a bit down the line uh, in England and Wales. There's a lot of work to do to see actually how that's going to work and how much it's going to cost. What about for you, Peter, the sustainability question? How big an issue is that for your business? Oh, well, uh, our customers, of course, are younger, uh, and it's very important for them to see a company, a, a, a club, um, do their bit. And so we promote whatever we can uh, along the sustainability line. Um, straws was absolute classic. We were one of the first to remove straws uh, from uh, our drinks. And all the other matters, such as recycling, uh, we are uh, all over this because we simply have to be. It's good business. Uh, we've got, as I say, a young audience. They tend to be more ethical uh, mm. and, and always have been, let's be honest. It's not a surprise that they may be more ethical today than they than maybe were 30 years ago because people uh, are caring about the planet, and, and rightly so. So we, we've got it. It's good business to be seen to do your bit and do more than most others. I think the other group of people who increasingly... It matters to our employees, and mm. uh, I think that's really important because in our in our industry in our sector, there is a huge amount of competition for good people. You know, finding good managers, whether it's clubs and pubs, I'm sure it's the same. Good kitchen staff is probably the hardest thing we've got. So, you know, if you're able to present yourself as a company which is acting in a way which they're going to feel comfortable with and there's a connection there, I think that's a good thing. And Nick, uh, Ralph talked about the importance of not only doing it but communicating it effectively to the key stakeholders. What, what can you say about 
the way that businesses like Peters and Ralph can, can talk about their sustainability story in a way which is relevant, doesn't just sound like lip service. I was going to say that's one of the biggest challenges because obviously what you don't want is the equivalent of greenwash where you just put it at the bottom of a press release. You've got to be seen to be buying into it, really believing it. And that runs through all your communications and obviously on site as well where people can really see. And even just by talking to the staff, you know, they'll be asked questions, you know, how much do you recycle? How's your energy um, produced? And it is running through the whole DNA of a company. You can't cheat. And that's what we say to all our clients. <laughs> on, on the point about uh, staff uh, that Ralph raised, this question of attracting the right people and keeping them, I'm interested to know from both of you who, who run businesses in this area, what, A, is the potential impact of Brexit in terms of the potential loss of European Union citizens who may work in pubs or clubs? So that's the first thing. And then also the issue around minimum wage and people on low salaries. Peter, what can you say about those? I, I suppose I'm luckier than a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues in the sector insofar as we aren't in London. We don't really sell food other than in uh, four or five sites. Um, and we don't employ that many European Union uh, nationals. Um, we've certainly got some fantastic workers that are from the European Union, but they're less than 5% of my uh, of my uh, em employees uh, and of course not having kitchens is a biggie because I know many uh, in the restaurant sector whether it's pubs or restaurants or casual dining they're very worried about this uh, so you know, it's a biggie and the other thing though is the national minimum wage and the national living wage it is becoming a problem and I was uh, at a meeting recently with other operators from across the sector including hotels and theme parks and um, we have got to a point where no one wants to put their prices up, uh, but uh, this is actually eroding their margin by about 1% every year. Uh, and uh, I did some numbers back end of last year, and uh, it, um, given the fact that sort of Saturday night is my sort of premium experience night, and therefore the, the one that can probably take a price rise more than any other night, not saying that I want to ever put my prices mm. up if I can uh, avoid it, uh, and for every 1% I lose on margin, I basically would have to put my drinks up 30p. So I have seen a constant margin erosion by this, uh, and it costs jobs. I really believe it does, because I spoke to a number of my friends around that room and, and they all said that because of this and because it's six percent this April that they're going to have to um, think twice about actually cutbacks um, and having slightly slower service because as I said can't everyone, afford to keep the same numbers. everyone doesn't want to put the prices up and what's been your experience Ralph and both on the Brexit and on that uh, minimum wage question on the Brexit point I think it is an issue for the sector as Peter said, probably less directly for Marston's because we're not so London or city centre based. Probably about five or six percent of our employees would be non-UK EU nationals. Across the sector, it's probably somewhere in the region of 15 to 20 percent. So it's a it's a it's a big number. And I think the concern is that although we're not directly exposed, if, if other operators who are have an issue, then that spreads out across the entire sector. There are only so many people um, available to work and who have got the right experience. I think on the on the minimum wage point, the recent increase, which was 6.2%, was ahead of what we had expected. Um, we we had, and most of us would would see the minimum wage running ahead of RPI. So we had thought probably four four and a half percent would have been the the rate of increase. So 6.2% costs us 
probably about six million a year of of additional cost. That's the you know, that's the harsh reality of it. Now I completely support the principle of raising pay for those who are least well paid in society. I understand all of that and support it. And if it costs us a bit more, there we are. What we need to get across, though, is that somewhere the government needs to give us a release valve. So what we can't see is a rate system which is penalising the sector. Uh, other costs, taxes that the government has put in on the sector rising and bear this at the same time. The sector has got a, you alluded to it earlier, quite a big failure rate. Mm. Well, there's a reason for that. And one of one of those reasons is that costs are going up faster than the top line. And that's not sustainable. So it's a, it's a big issue. The, the other point I, I suppose I want to kind of get into is about the relationship between this sector and the regulators and whether you think on the whole you get a good hearing and whether the people who make the laws and the decisions which affect your businesses are broadly sympathetic or do you think they just don't get it? Well, on, just specifically on the pub rates point, the government is a bit too cute, a bit too clever on rates relief for pubs because it restricts it to pubs with a relatively low rateable value and then there's a cap on the amount that any business can reclaim in any case. If you look at the reality across the pub sector, pubs pay about 5% of the UK business rates bill for something like 1% of retail turnover. It's way out of kilter. Um, So do I think we've had a fair hearing on that from government? No, we haven't. And the reason, I think, is simply because we pay them too much money. Okay. And Peter, from your perspective on that whole question around relationship with the with the decision makers and the regulators mm. you get a fair hearing uh, i think it's getting better there is an understanding at government that um, having a sustainable business is good for the economy and i think that uh, hospitality is being taken more seriously these days than it ever has been still needs to be better could do with a hospitality minister i mean it's a big sector 130 billion pounds sector employing 3.2 million and it pays uh, 39 billion in tax so what i want to do by way of sort of wrapping up is to get all three of you to sort of do a bit of crystal ball gazing so have a think about where we're likely to be in this sector specifically around nighttime economy in maybe five, ten years' time, starting with you, Nick, what's your impression? I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give a categorical answer. I'd say the aspiration is that there's much more of a partnership between companies in the hospitality sector and the stakeholders around them, which includes, obviously, local councils, the police, and, and the whole community, so they're all pulling in the same direction rather than people operating in silos. And how about you, Peter? Where do you see things going? Well, I'm, I'm an always, I'm an optimist. Of course. Uh, but I, I think that we are seeing a, a proliferation, of, uh, a variety of different experiences come into the high street, which is broadening the appeal of the high street. I think it's fair to say that if you go back 10, 15 years, it was pretty much uh, alcohol-based. It's much wider now. I think that's good. I think that there is a realisation that there's only so much you can do when it comes to town centres. If the retail's shutting down, leisure's got to be encouraged. Otherwise, they're just going to... Uh, 
only be, frankly, accommodation, and that's not good for the vibrancy or keeping or attracting people. But I also do fear that uh, if we carry on rising uh, uh, our costs uh, outside of our control, that we're going to see investments slow, and that's inevitable. I like to try and keep in my business 5% of our money that we make to put back in and invest. That's 5% of our turnover, uh, and that's under pressure because of uh, increasing costs. So they must understand the model. It mustn't break. But ultimately, people still want to go out. They still want to have fun. And, and that, totally. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. And people won't stop going out uh, and they won't stop wanting to let their hair down and meet people and socially interact, especially given the fact that so many people these days do work from home mm. and work on a computer and don't talk to people and are on social media all the time. But it's interesting. We did one piece of research and it was about social media. Uh, and even with the youngsters, the in real life experience, the IRL experience was seen as greater value than online experiences and friendships, even with Generation Z. That's reassuring to hear. What about you, Ralph? Where do you think things are going? Uh, well, I'm optimistic. I, I feel lucky to work in the pub sector for a number of reasons. One is it's all about fun and enjoyment, and to do that, how lucky can you be? And at the same time, the pub model is really resilient i mean yes it has hiccups at various times but it fundamentally it's been such a solid model it evolves it isn't all about alcohol today but it, what it is still about is communities and socializing and people being together and i think those fundamental things are going to endure i'm very pleased to hear it as a pub owner albeit only a very modest one. It only remains for me to say thank you very much indeed to my guest today. That's uh, Peter Marks from Deltic, Ralph Finley from Marsons, and Nick Lyon from Hudson Sandler. You can find out a little more about this podcast, some of the things we've talked about on the Hudson Sandler website. And of course, you should follow us on Twitter at Hudson Sandler. For now, thanks very much. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com. Hudson Sandler.